from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Is there a God who loves man? Go to a spokesman for any religion today and ask him if his God loves him. It's likely to be a very strange question. I'd like to tell you that my God loves me, and He loves you. To look to the cross of Jesus Christ is to marvel at the extent of His love for us. We see there the height and depth of His love. We see the length and breadth of it. Does Jesus love us? Why, yes, He does. The cross is the proof of His love. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continued to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, Behold How He Loves. How does a wife know that her husband loves her? If he acts cold and indifferent towards her, doesn't matter how many times he says, I love you, she won't really believe in his love. A husband must prove his words by showing his love to his wife. The Bible says many times that God loves his people, but how does he show it? Jesus shows us his great love by weeping over Lazarus and by suffering the wrath of God on the cross to save his people from sin, death, and eternal punishment. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, Behold How He Loves. I think Jesus is moved with deep emotion and yet this emotion is disciplined. I think we have to take a look at the reaction of the spectators to Christ's tears. We also have to understand how the explanation of his grief by the Jews contained an unintentional truth. Behold how he loved him. Now, there were two reactions from the spectators. On the one hand, there was the reaction of those who were quite obviously unbelievers. These thought that Jesus' tears were a proof of his weakness, so they concluded, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? These persons were surprised that Jesus had not been able to do something about Lazarus's sickness earlier, but they reasoned that obviously he had not been able to help out or he would have done it did not even begin to enter their minds that Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. The other reaction to Christ's tears was neither an expression of belief or disbelief. It was, well, it was just an observation. These people looked at Christ's tears and concluded rightly that Jesus loved Lazarus. They said, Behold how he loved him. Many people, perhaps most of those who are hearing these words today, know the Lord well enough to know that he loves others, and most know that he also loves them. But if this is so, then 
It's surely right to take the text personally and say, behold how he loves us, or to make it even more personal, say, behold how he loves me. This is a cause for great wonder. Spurgeon, in an excellent sermon on this text, once wrote, Most of us here, I trust, are not mere onlookers, but we have a share in the special love of Jesus. We see evidences of that love, not in his tears, but in the precious blood that he so freely shed for us. So we ought to marvel even more than those Jews did at the love of Jesus, and to see further into his heart than they did, and to know more of him than they could in the brief interval in which they had become acquainted with him. Well, this is true. So let us say, behold how he loves us, and then think quietly over what we know to underlie that statement. As the eyes of our mind sweep over all we know concerning Jesus from the past to the present, let us ask, where is it that we first see his love? Is it when we first became aware of his love? Or when he died for us? Or when he created us? None of these points represents a true beginning. Indeed, to speak frankly, there is no beginning. For as far back as we can look into the past, we find him loving us. It was in eternity past that he so identified himself with us that he took up our cause and determined to redeem his fallen people. In his divine foresight, Jesus looked upon the race as yet that was not created and saw it ruined through sin. We see everything through the blinders of time for us, Life is always past, present, and future, but it's not this way with God. He is above and beyond time, so that to him, in some sense, all things are present. It was in this way, then, that Jesus looked out upon what was to come and saw the ruin into which our sin would plunge us. Who was there in that moment beyond time to take our side, espouse our cause, and pledge himself to redeem that fallen temple? It was no one but Christ. For as Isaiah wrote concerning God's search for a Redeemer, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. It was Jesus then who took up our cause. Moreover, in that moment he also pledged himself to be the surety or pledge for his covenant people. That is, he took man's part in the creation of an eternal covenant between God and man and pledged to fulfill man's part of it. For he knew that the demands of that covenant could never be met by human beings. The nature of God's covenant with man in Christ is seen in the record of a similar covenant that God later established with Abraham. In Abraham's day, a covenant was sometimes made through a strange ceremony in which animals were cut in two along the backbone and placed in two rows over against one another, thereby forming a space in which the parties to the covenant stood while they exchanged their vows. The shed blood of the animals, which was on the ground, of course, made the covenant particularly sacred. Since this was the form of enacting a covenant that Abraham was used to. God used it in promising Abraham that he would bless him. In this case, however, there was one significant variation. 
Abraham became a spectator to the covenant. That is, he was on the sideline seeing it in something like a dream or a vision, while God, represented by a smoking furnace and a lamp, passed alone between the pieces. You see, the point was that God was establishing the covenant apart from any participation on the part of Abraham. Therefore, it was unilateral, that is, by God alone, eternal, without end, and undeserved. Now, in a similar way, Jesus established a covenant on our behalf and for our good long before we were able to have any part in it personally. He pledged himself to die for us, thereby giving his life as a ransom and an atonement for our sins. This pledge was unilateral, for he did it by himself and without our asking. It is eternal, for what he has begun he will most certainly bring to completion, and it is undeserved, for we are lost in sin and therefore have no claim upon him. Moreover, this covenant is sealed with Christ's blood, for we are saved, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus pledged himself to do what we could never do, so uniting himself with us that his death became our death, his life, our life, his resurrection, our resurrection. And when did he do this? Why, before we were even born, indeed, before there was even a physical creation, so great was his love for us. It's also true that in time the Lord Jesus Christ loved us enough to leave the glories of heaven and take the form of a man upon himself. In this form he endured all the temptation, disappointments, suffering that we are heir to. Paul writes about it in Philippians. He, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. This is the essence of the Incarnation. It is one of the greatest wonders of all time, but it means quite simply that Jesus became like us in order that we might become like him. How was he like us? Well, he became like us in temptations, but the author of Hebrews writes that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Have you been tempted? Are you being tempted? So was he. Yet he was victorious over it. Now he reigns with the Father in heaven so that you might turn to him to find mercy and have grace to help in time of need. Jesus also became like us in disappointments. A friend betrayed him. Others let him down. No one really understood him. His own countrymen, whom he had tried to help, killed him. Clearly, Jesus knew disappointments, but these did not defeat him. They did not make him bitter. Instead, he triumphed over them. He also knew suffering. Did anyone ever suffer as much as Jesus did? Oh, in 
a physical sense, I suppose it's possible that some persons could have, though there are few forms of suffering as great as that endured in crucifixion. But in a total sense, that is, in a sense that involves mental and spiritual anguish as well as physical suffering, no one can match him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He who had never experienced so much as one second of broken fellowship between himself and the Father was separated from the Father so that he called out in great agony of soul, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No other suffering was ever as great as his. Yet he endured all this, so much did he love us. This leads to our next point, for we may certainly say, Behold how he loves us when we reflect on his death by crucifixion. Jesus loved us so much that he became our sin-bearer. As Paul says, For he, that is God, hath made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I am sure that we'll never understand the full extent of this action on the part of Christ. Certainly not in this life. I even doubt that we'll understand it fully in the life to come. For how can it be that the one who had existed with God the Father from eternity and who was himself God could become man and suffer even unto the point of spiritual death so that he was actually made sin for us and was separated from his Father? I cannot understand it, yet that is what the scriptures teach, and I believe it. Moreover, I marvel at it, for to look to the cross of Jesus Christ is to marvel at the extent of his love for us. We see there the height and depth of his love. We see the length and breadth of it. Does Jesus love us? Why, Yes, he does. The cross is the proof of his love. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So great was his love for us. And too, Jesus also loved us so much that he called us personally and individually, persisting in his call until by the force of his love he drew us to him. Jesus died for us. That is true, but what was that to us until he called us to him? At best, it was an exemplary death, but it meant little. When first we heard of it, we were indifferent. If we had been in Jerusalem at the time of his crucifixion, we would not have intervened to save him, nor would we have thought much about it once the death had been accomplished. Now, after the passage of 2,000 years, well, it has just meant even less than a little. But Jesus pursued us. We failed to understand the meaning of his death, but he carefully explained it to us. We grew tired of the explanation, so he changed his methods of instruction and taught us differently. We said no to his call, but he would not accept our no. At last, when we could resist him no longer, we yielded to what Spurgeon called the sweet compulsion of his grace. We found him forgiving our sin, justifying us from all iniquity, adopting us as his sons and daughters, filling us with his spirit, and imparting to us all the riches of his abounding grace. 
Moreover, this is not just our experience of him in the days before we became his children, even after we believed, his grace continued. For we were not faithful. He was faithful to us, but we each went our own way, despising his will, and pursuing a course of sin marked out by our own stubborn hearts. If Jesus had cast us from him at this point, at least from the point of view of our sin, he would have been justified. But Jesus did not cast us off. Rather, he loved us even in our willfulness and strove by every means to melt our cold indifference and restore us to him. Sometimes Jesus calls loudly. Sometimes he calls softly. But always there is his call. So great is his love for us. Finally, we recall that the Lord Jesus Christ has loved us so much that he has given us all things. He has given us all that we need now, having blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. And he has blessed us in the hereafter, having gone to prepare a place for us. So, what more can we ask? In what additional way could Jesus possibly show his love to us? That love should speak to us and should melt our hearts. But now, let's turn the statement around. Until this point, I've been talking of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, and I've called upon each one who knows that love to marvel at it. But turn it around. Do we love him? Has anyone ever said of you, behold how he or she loves Jesus? Spurgeon asks that same question in the sermon I referred to earlier, and he answers it like this. Listen for a minute or two while I tell you what some saints have done to show their love for their Lord. There have been those who have suffered for his sake. They have lain in damp dungeons and have refused to accept liberty at the price of treachery to their Lord and his truth. They have been stretched upon the rack, yet no torture could make them yield up their fidelity to God. If you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know how hundreds of brave men and women and children, too, stood at the stake, gloriously calm and often triumphantly happy, and were burnt to death for Christ's sake. While many of those who looked on learned to imitate their noble example, and others who heard their dying testimonies and their spiritual songs, not groans, could not help exclaiming, Behold how these martyrs love their master. There have been others who have shown their love to their Lord by untiring and self-sacrificing service. They have labored for him at times under great privations and amid many perils, some as missionaries in foreign lands and others with equal zeal in their own country. Some of us can never hope to wear the ruby crown of martyrdom, yet we may be honored by receiving the richly jeweled crown from the hand of Christ as he says to each of his true laborers, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then we have known some saints who showed their love to their Lord by weeping over sinners and praying for their conversion. 
There have been gracious men and women who could not sleep at night because of their anxiety about the eternal welfare of their relatives and friends, or even of lost ones who were personally unknown to them. And they have risen from their beds to agonize in prayer for sinners who were either calmly sleeping and not even dreaming of their doom, or else at that very hour were adding to their previous transgressions. Others have prove their love to their Lord by the way in which they have given of their substance, their money, to his cause. Well, these paragraphs by Spurgeon are a good statement of what many others have done because of their great love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they may serve as a challenge to us, but the question still remains, do you love Jesus? Has anyone ever said of you, Behold how he loves his master. Years ago, a single woman missionary went to North Africa and settled in Tunis, where she began to try to win Moslems to Christ. She met with little success, as seems always to be the case in Moslem lands, but she persisted, above all, continuing to love those to whom she was witnessing. One young Muslim lad came to her home every week for English classes. She'd been giving such classes as a way of getting to know some of the Tunisians and of helping them. So she taught him English, and as she did, she tried to tell him of Jesus. The student listened, but he was not moved. Months passed. Finally, the summer before he was to go away to university came, and the lad dropped his classes. The summer passed. One day... Just before his departure, the young man came by to say goodbye to the missionary for the final time. The two of them had tea together, and the woman told of Jesus for what seemed to be the final time. Still, there were no results. The Muslim was polite, but adamant. The moment came for the final farewells, and the student left the missionary's door and walked down the path leading through the garden to the outside gate. Here he stopped and looked back, and he saw his teacher standing in the doorway looking after him with tears streaming down her face. He could resist no longer. Her tears conquered the rebellion in his heart, and he returned up the path and into the living room where he received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Could that be a picture of you? Could it be you standing there in a foreign land weeping for the lost? Could it be a picture of you at home weeping for a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a neighbor? Such a thing should be possible. For many should be able to see the tears of Christ in you and say, Behold how he loves Jesus. I'm talking today with Dr. D. James Kennedy, pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church of Coral Ridge, Florida, and author of the very well-known best-selling book on evangelism called Evangelism Explosion, Dr. Kennedy, your church has had remarkable growth in uh, the years since you became pastor, which I also understand is the very beginning when it was first founded. 
I know people would be glad to hear about that, and perhaps we could talk a little bit about why. Thank you, uh, Dr. Boyce. Yes, it was their beginning. It was also my beginning. It was the first church experience that I had had after seminary. We started out with 45 people, and I preached some magnificent messages for 10 months, and we ended up with 17 people. And at that time, I realized something had to be done. And it was uh, about at that juncture of my life that a minister came along and showed me how I could share my faith with others on a person-to-person basis, and also to train others to do the same thing. And the growth of the church that has taken place has come about as a result of individual laymen sharing their faith in Christ with others. I'd like to talk another time about some of the problems with lay witnessing and why it's not being done elsewhere, but perhaps you could tell us just today what you do. Perhaps the thing I should focus in on is what I believe the missing link in lay evangelistic training is. What is usually done is that a number of classes are given to laymen, and then they're sent out and told to do this. On their own. On their own. Unfortunately, that doesn't touch the main problem, which is their fear. It's somewhat like receiving a number of classes and flying an airplane and then being told to get in a plane and take it off and fly it. So the key, we feel, is what Christ did. He called the disciples that they should be with him. And so the important factor, I believe, is on-the-job training where I took out uh, laymen, as I myself had been taken out, and learn by watching. And then when they learn, they choose others, and they take them out. And so we have a multiplication process that takes place in this way. And now, our Father, we thank you for these truths from your word, and we ask you to use them in our hearts. We thank you for your love for us, shown in Jesus Christ, and we Rejoice and marvel in such a great love. Help us to also love as he loved, to love you and to love our neighbors and to love those without the gospel in order that some might be one to our Savior. For we ask that in his name. Amen. If you are a Christian, Jesus has shown in a powerful way how very much he loves you. In your daily life, do you show others how much you love Jesus? If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, Behold How He Loves, or simply ask for message number 1322. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. 
Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, Behold How He Loves. That's message number 1322. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.